We're here to share with you inspiring stories that bring to life all the little and big ways that people bring more love, joy, laughter, and humanness to everyday life. Our focus is to hunt for those little moments that refuel the human soul and reminds us what life is really all about. I invite you to sit back, enjoy the moments, enjoy the stories, the adventures, and the journeys. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of What the World Needs More Of. I am here with a new acquaintance and friend, if I may. His name is Greg. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now we're going to dive straight in to the question of the show, which is what do you believe the world needs more of? You know, this is a very intimidating question. And uh, I'm glad it's the name of your podcast, because at least I knew in advance you're going to ask me this. And I, and I thought a lot about this. And I, here's what I came up with. I think the world needs more internal debate. Ooh. And I probably need to explain what I mean by that. And, and this morning I had an experience that I think perfectly illustrates this. Uh, I uh, do a lot of stretching in the morning, and and one of the stretches... I'm sort of laying on my back for five minutes for each leg. And so for 10 minutes, I just lay on my back with my leg up against the door jam, stretching, and I read the news on my phone. And I was reading the story that just outraged me. It was just outrageous. Anyone ever have that experience of reading something that's just outrageous? Uh, it was a story about a woman who had cancer. Her doctors, like a big team of some of the best cancer doctors in the country, all said she should have this treatment, which was not a typical treatment for her cancer. And the insurance company said no. She was fortunate. Her parents took $100,000 out of their retirement and paid for the cancer treatment. And she lived. And two years later, she's cancer-free and completely healthy, strong. You know, she's a runner. I mean, she's just having a great life. Now, we don't know what would have happened if they had used the other treatment that the insurance company would have approved, but they didn't approve the $100,000 treatment. And as I'm reading this, I'm getting outraged because, because I've had this happen to, you know, you go to the doctor and the doctor says you need X, but first we have to ask the insurance company permission. I'm thinking, well, why you're the doctor? Why I, and I pay the insurance premiums. Why would we have to ask the insurance company for permission? But here's a perfect life or death example. And as I was getting outraged, I began to think to myself, well, wait a minute. It, this is an example of, of internal debate. I said, it is the insurance company's job to make money for their shareholders. And that that's probably maybe a structural flaw, but it's the way it works today. So I started thinking like they have to say no to something and there has to be some criteria. And then I started thinking, well, you know, it would be interesting if when you bought insurance or paid your monthly premium for insurance, what if you actually became a shareholder in the company? Hmm. Then you might change your attitude about what the insurance company should pay for, at least when it wasn't you, 
because not only would you be counting on them for insurance, but you'd also be counting on them to build up the company and make it more valuable because you were a shareholder. Hmm. But all this happened as a form of internal debate in my own head, because at least I had the wherewithal to say to myself, there might be another side of the story. Another way you could say it is, you know, sometimes it's valuable to walk in someone else's shoes. Um, and I realized, you know, we may have flaws in our insurance system. And I think that's a, you know, pretty often debated topic these days. Uh, but there probably are two sides to the story. And I think today it's so easy to pick up, you know, we, we're surrounded by media and it's so easy to pick up on the bad part of the story, which frankly is often the most interesting part of the story, or even the falsely represented part of the story, which is usually more interesting than the truth. And then to assume that there's some evil thing going on over there. And when reality is there's probably another side to the story. And if we each took a little time to debate it before we flew off the handle, we might at least be able to envision that, oh, there might be some justification for this and maybe even investigate the other side of the story to really understand it from both sides. That's why I say internal debate. I love that. I love that. And so often we find ourselves um, even where someone's driving a car and they get pulled over for doing something illegal. And then they're upset at the police officer for pulling them over for doing something illegal that they know they were doing. <laughs> Yes. Or, or someone cuts you off and we assume they're, this is one, I, I find myself having this conversation all the time. Someone cuts me off and we assume they're a bad person. Mm. Well, they may be a bad driver, but not a bad person. Or they may have just this one time made a bad call or, you know, because then I'll stop and say, well, have you ever cut someone off? And mm. even though I don't think I've ever done it intentionally, or at least not since I was, you know, a hot rotting teenager, um, I don't think I've ever done it intentionally as an adult, but I bet I've done it. And then all of a sudden you go, well, does that make me a bad person? No, it just makes me having been temporarily, maybe not a very good driver, but I shouldn't be condemned to the halls of hell for it. That's right. And either should this person. My friend says it's a good human being a horrible driver today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, and sometimes that good human is me. Uh, in <laughs> fact, I, I uh, was driving somewhere a few weeks ago. I was a little unsure of where I was going and the lane I was in suddenly became a turn lane or something. I, I was confused by the circumstances um, and I think of myself as a good driver, as we all do. We're all we all know we're better drivers than everyone else, which is statistically impossible. But I, you know, I anyway, I I had was forced, frankly, probably now that I think about it, I was probably in a position where I had to cut someone off, but not intent, not not by plan, but by circumstance. Hmm. Anyway, and a police officer ended up behind me. And he followed me for about a mile, and I knew he was following me, and I knew he saw what I did. Uh, and finally I got to where I was going and I pulled into the parking lot and he followed me and I knew what was going to come. And, you know, I know enough to you put your hands on the steering wheel so he doesn't have to worry about you doing something bad. And he came over and he actually said, did you know you were speeding? <laughs> I didn't know. I was, and in fact, I never, I'm, I'm a very conscientious driver, but it, the reality is when I cut that person off, I probably put my foot into the gas pedal. So I probably <laughs> was speeding when he saw me at that moment. And so he then went behind the car and started doing whatever police officers do. And here's the saving grace part of it. 
an older woman, an elderly woman pulled up behind his car and started asking him questions. Mm. And he was torn between dealing with me or helping her. And it was, it, it was, he was kind of put in a difficult situation. And I think the woman didn't understand that she was interrupting him while he was about to write me a ticket. And finally he came over and he went, you're not going to get a ticket because of that woman back there. She needs some help. You should thank Aww. her. And I said, would you thank her for me? And he <laughs> laughed and he said, yes, but next time don't speed. And I said, you have my word. Uh, but it was, it was just a, it, that was a circumstance where I was lucky but never in my mind was I angry with the police officer. He was doing his job. He saw me do something. I knew I had done something that was not a good, was not a good example of driving. I really didn't know I was speeding, but I at least had enough uh, self-awareness or internal debate to say, you know what, it's not his fault. Let's just make this as easy on him as I can. I wasn't even trying to argue him out of the ticket. I just figured he's going to do what he's got to do. It's his job a powerful place to come from when you can psychologically find that place to be able to step into their shoes, see the other side, experience it briefly, have a little empathy for it and just say, hey, I, if I were in their shoes, um, the insurance company or the police officer, I, I might be able to see this other side. It is really powerful. I, I agree with you. I think the world does need more of that. Well, no, no. And, and I'll throw in one other group that sometimes it's really smart to to side with, even if you don't agree with them, find a way to side with them the politician. And mm. I'm not going to reveal, you know, what color I am or who I support, but you know what? It's so easy to assume the other guys and gals are trying to do a terrible thing. But if you can step back and say, maybe they're, maybe in their mind, there's a rationale for making this decision or doing this thing or saying this thing. A lot of times you can, you can begin to see the world in a better way than you did if you just fly off the handle and make assumptions. That's true. We just watched a documentary and there's a human, totally different discussion for a different podcast, but there's a guy, I think his name is Roger Stone. Yes. I want to get into this human's head. I want to, <laughs> I, I want to understand the processing. <laughs> I don't agree with the processing, but like you said, I'd love to step into his world and understand. And I'm sure there's so much behind it. Um, I've seen things go on in the recent years and I've said, I don't think this is by accident. I really feel like someone's doing this on purpose and there's strategy around it and I don't know what it is. Um, and I, I think he might be the human who's causing some of the strategy that I've been so curious about. <laughs> well, you know, I would ask, um, I, it's funny when you mention Roger Stone, because as we're talking uh, just yesterday or the day before, it was actually a perfect example of of this idea of taking a moment to have an internal debate. Mm. He posted something, I th a photo on Instagram of himself and some other members of the, I'm going to call them the Trump in inner circle because he's mm -hmm. not a cabinet member, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, just people really close to the president and they were all in spacesuits. And he said something like, this is a crew I'm proud to be a member of. Mm. Now, What's interesting about the photo, and don't jump to conclusions here, what's interesting about the photo is each of the astronauts, including Roger, so someone put their heads on real astronauts' bodies, right? It was Photoshopped. <laughs> and Roger Stone is one of the heads. President Trump is one of the heads. Uh, each of the astronauts on their orange astronaut suit has a swastika. Oh, dear. And in the right-hand corner of the image is a swastika. And it's 
what I read was Roger Stone retweets image of himself and blah, blah, blah with swastika. And I looked at it and boy, he sure did. He says, and you know what? I'm willing to take his word for it. He says, you know, and, and in not very kind or generous terms, um, I didn't even see the swastika. I just thought the image was funny. And I, it's a group of people I was proud to be with. So I, I retweeted it or whatever you do on Instagram. But I, but I could see how that could happen. Because mm. in a world of social media, how often do you like something without really looking closely at it? Now, it's hard for me to believe that someone could look at an image with a bunch of swastikas on it and not notice them. But you know what? My face wasn't on the image. I might have just been looking to see how my hair looked. I'm willing to believe that he retweeted it or reposted it without really realizing the swastikas were there because I can't imagine any reason in the world why he would repost it knowing the swastikas were there, or at least calling attention to them. And he didn't mention them at all. But I think that's an example of, you know, really having a little internal debate and, and trying to see through things through another's eyes or walk in another's shoes. Hmm. I can certainly feel the deep breath needed in my body when I hear that. <laughs> a little internal debate needed to process. But like I said, I'm wildly curious about that human. I don't know why. I, I just want to know if there's more to the story than what's on the surface or what's being pushed out into the, the world. But I'm also curious about you. And I, I'd like to maybe shift and, and get to know more of what makes you you. For everyone who's listening, I'd love to know what do you feel your wow factor is? And, and what makes you uniquely you? And maybe what's one or two life moments that help craft or shape that over the years? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I'm not sure I know the answer. Maybe you can tell me when we're done. Uh, I love the idea of a wow factor. Um, and I, I don't know that I know what my wow factor is, but I, I, I've spent my career as a journalist uh, and I've done a lot of things on the side as well. Um, but I think what has allowed me to do the things I've done, and now that I think about it, it it's, it's almost the same idea of stepping back and trying to see things as they really are. Um, I've had a lot of opportunities in my career by simply looking at the circumstances where, for instance, someone said, oh, that's impossible. And then proving that it wasn't impossible at all. Uh, I'll give you an example. And I think this was kind of a, a life-changing event for me. Uh, very early in my career as a journalist, I was about 24, 25. I got a call from uh, an editor at one of the largest magazines in the world, which at the time, this is kind of an anachronism now, but uh, years ago, before there was a thing called the Internet, uh, the most widely read magazine in the country was called TV Guide. And if you wanted to know what was on, you didn't look on your phone. <laughs> you bought a copy of TV Guide. And so it had huge circulation. And an editor there got my name from a friend of his. And this editor, who I had never heard of before, said to me, we're going to have, I think it was the thousandth issue or the 10,000th issue of TV Guide. It was going to be this very special issue. And they wanted me to interview a hundred of the most important people in the world about what they watched on TV and the most significant moment they had ever seen while watching TV. And he said, we want you to get the president, the Queen of England, and Elizabeth Taylor. I was 24. 
<laughs> no small <laughs> ask. <laughs> and I did what any smart 24-year-old would do. I said, sure, I can do that. And I did. Uh, and 97 other very impressive people as well. Uh, but it was a moment where I had, when I said yes, I had no idea how to do it. I realized it was probably impossible. Um, but I didn't let that stop me. And I did get the president and the first lady, which was uh, President Bush one, to answer some questions. In fact, I was actually, as a 24, 25 year old, was scheduled to go to the White House, to the Oval Office and ask the president in a sit down mm -hmm. interview. And circumstances arose where that sit down interview never happened, but even that didn't stop me. I still persisted to actually get the president to respond in writing. Uh, mm -hmm. I did get the Queen of England, or at least her office, to respond. I did get Elizabeth Taylor to respond. And I actually think your father was one of the people that responded. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh when he makes lists like that. I was like, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, it's been a long time, but uh, I think that uh, I think he was actually one of the people that we put in that article. Oh, wow. How fun. How fun. What an adventure that must have been. It was. And, uh, so I'll tell you what I did and, and, and what made it possible. Now, I had briefly worked as a celebrity PR person, and which is why I think the friend of the editor thought I could do this. He thought, I, he, he, Stebbin probably knows, you know, how to get past the gatekeepers or to work with the gatekeepers. Uh, I really didn't have a clue when I started. But what I figured out, and this is going back a lot of years, obviously, it was during the first Bush presidency. Uh, faxes were pretty new. And uh, what I figured out was, I mean, I, I had never done this before. I figured out that if I could figure out who the gatekeeper was and get their fax number, instead of calling and asking for an interview, I could just send a one-page document that asked the questions with the TV Guide logo on it and a cover page that explained that this is the biggest magazine in the world, and this is going to be the biggest issue of the year for the biggest magazine in the world. And that's what opened the doors with everyone. I, every day, I would come into my office, and there would be responses by fax in handwriting. I still have them. Some of the interviews I did by phone, but every day I would come in. This was like a three-month project. And there would be the most amazing stories, handwritten in many cases, by some of the most amazing people. And let me tell you, it was, it made going to work really fun because I'd unlock the door of my office and say, you know, who faxed me today? What an adventure. How fun to it. I, I mean, it'd feel like you're reaching the end of the rainbow each day and you get the Absolutely. pot of gold right when you open the office door. Absolutely. What a different way to show up to the work as well. Yeah. And I don't know if anyone else had, had, had used that approach, but part of it was just understanding, uh, People were going to be, you know, big name celebrities are very hard to reach. But also, I realized if I'm going to interview 100 people, I can't talk to them all on the phone. I had to find another way. And I, if, if, if I was going to take a stab at what my wow might be, it's that I've always kind of figured out a better way to get the impossible done. Hmm. I love that. What a powerful statement. I've always found a way to get... A, a, always found a better way to get the impossible done. I kind of like it too. Can I keep that? Yeah, I think okay. I'm gonna thank you. Put that thank as you for the, dragging the show that quote. out of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a powerful show statement right there. I'm gonna 
I, I don't have as many years in journalism, but I'm going to put that right smack on something that goes out with this one. Oh, good. I like it, too. <laughs> Here's a question. What's a moment out of all the years that made you feel incredibly humble? I have to say that that happens to me all the time. Uh, yesterday, I interviewed a couple of gentlemen who spent their careers at very high levels of running organizations and as consultants, consulting with organizations to help them be better at executing strategy or coming up with strategy. And I was in, uh, I do a podcast as well, as you know, it's called Forbes Books Radio. And, you know, the, the interesting twist here is that I was able to interview you for that podcast. But I interviewed these two gentlemen yesterday, and about five years ago, they reached a point in their careers where they both realized they wanted to do something different. And what they committed themselves to doing is they now work with nonprofits and NGOs, large, very large global nonprofits and NGOs. And the work they do with those organizations is, as they said, we help them make change where change really matters. They do the kind of work with these organizations that in some cases is literally the difference between life and death. Mm. And to hear these two people talking about how they recognized an opportunity to do that and stopped what they were doing and said, I'm going to do that instead. That's how I want to finish my career. That was incredibly humbling. And, I, and I, I'm very fortunate. I get to talk with people like that all the time who are doing things in the world that really matter. Not all of us can do things that really matter in our jobs, but the truth is we can all do things that really matter. We just have to look for those opportunities and take them, not say, oh, well, that's for someone else to do or I'll do that tomorrow. I think there was an interesting study done about this topic where they saw someone in need and if no one helped Everyone literally just stood and watched. But as soon as one person stepped in and helped, everyone activated and started helping. And when they asked people why they didn't help, it was because they believed someone else was going to. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they saw someone helping, they all started to, to pitch in and do their part. Yeah, be the somebody else. Yeah. Be the helper. Be that first person to get things moving. What a great statement. Love it. Here's here's a twist. What's or what's an awe-inspiring moment along the way? Many years ago in my TV guide days, I got a call one day from CNN and uh, they told me that it I think it was Larry King's 10th anniversary on the network. Mm. And they had planned this incredible week of interviews. So uh, so this was a few years later because the vice president was one of those interviews, which was now Al Gore. Another one of the interviews was Mikhail Gorbachev. And of course, this was after all the change in Russia. He was no longer uh, an official in the Russian government, but had started the Gorbachev Foundation. But he was going to be a guest with Larry King. And there was actually some technological feat that was being accomplished in this interview as well, in that I think it was the first time that on live television, they were able to do simultaneous translations so that two people that didn't speak the same language could almost feel like they were because in their ears, what the other said would be translated so fast that they could respond quickly. So wow. it's almost like a normal conversation. Oh, cool. 
Uh, yeah, very cool. So the folks at CNN said, why don't you come and cover part of this week with Larry? It's, you know, this big week for Larry King. And I said, sure. And they said, when would you like to come? And I'm no fool. I said, well, I'll come when Gorbachev is there. That's fantastic. And, and, and it made sense. It's TV guide. And it was, kind, it was a breakthrough for television. Well, what happened before the interview was really fantastic. Uh, you could imagine that if you were Larry King and you were, you know, Gorbachev was, he, he, he was kind of a mythological person at this point. I mean, the changes that he had brought about in the Soviet Union were so dramatic. Uh, you can imagine if you were Larry King and, and Mikhail Gorbachev was coming to do an interview with you, you might actually like to host a dinner with him beforehand and invite all your best friends. That's what I would do. And that's what Larry King did. And Larry King had a favorite restaurant in Washington, D.C. called Duke's. And Duke's is kind of a famous place. I mean, every president, I, I don't think it's there now, but until it closed, I think every president had dined there. And Larry King would have lunch there every day. He had his own table. And so this was, this was a big deal for Larry King. It was a big deal for Duke's. And frankly, it was a big deal for all of Larry King's friends. Because, you know, I'd like to be invited to a dinner where, you know, I get to have dinner with Gorbachev. And in fact, I was invited to dinner. Well, again, I was pretty young. I was 25 or 26. And at the dinner, a couple of things happened that were really fantastic. One was, and, and this is a bit of an ego stroke for me, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, if you were one of Larry King's 30 friends, uh, you're seated a long way from Gorbachev, mostly because only a couple people get to be close to him, right? I mean, it's a big table. And by the way, it's in the public dining room of Duke. So if you walked into Duke's to have dinner that night, you might just look over and go, oh, I think that's Larry King and Mikhail Gorbachev. So people were really staring, right? I mean, not only Larry King's friends who got to say they had dinner with Gorbachev, but everybody else in the restaurant was staring too. Well, at one point, one of the PR people from CNN came over to me. I was I was sort of like at the kids' table, but it wasn't really the kids' table. It was the journalist table. I was there with a, another reporter and a, and a couple of photographers because we weren't Larry King's friends, so we didn't get to sit at the main table. But at some point, and again, think I'm 26, 25, or 26 years old. At one point, the PR person from CNN came over and said, uh, would you like to do an interview with Mr. Gorbachev? And so while all of Larry King's friends are staring at me because they don't get to talk to Mr. Gorbachev, I did. <laughs> and I was just a kid. And I have to tell you, it felt really good. But I'll tell you what felt really better. What felt much better was I realized as I was sitting at the journalist table that in the back room of Dukes, there was like a kind of a banquet room and there was a wedding going on. And so I called my friend, the PR person from CNN, and I said, you know, there's a wedding going on back there. I said, if you want to, like, have a photo on the cover of every newspaper in the world, get Mr. Gorbachev to go back there and congratulate the bride and the groom. <laughs> she liked that idea. <laughs> and she okay. one-upped it, actually. She went in, she talked to the family of the bride or the groom. And instead of having Gorbachev go into the banquet room, they brought the bride and the groom into the dining room where everyone was already staring and barely eating their meals, frankly, because it was a pretty spectacular thing to be a part of. And when the bride and groom came into the dining room, and they, of course, prepped Mr. Gorbachev and made sure he would do it as well. And he got up and spoke with them in a sense, you know, 
posed for photos with them and everything, everyone in the restaurant jumped up to their feet and jumped up to their feet and gave them a standing ovation. It, it was like a scene out of a movie. It was people were really it was like a moment where you could imagine we could all get along in the world. Mm-hmm. And here it was happening. And you know what? It felt pretty good to know that, hey, that was my idea. What a moment of history. I can see where that was the awe-inspiring moment, a moment, and I love how you put it, a moment that showed there's the possibility of us all being able to get along around the world. And we don't see those moments very often. No. Wow. How beautiful. What a cool moment. Now, we're going to take a twist here. What's your greatest fear? That's a really interesting question. And I... I, I'm 57 years old, and I came to the realization recently that I am absolutely not afraid of death. Hmm. I'm, I'm very healthy. I'm not planning on going anywhere anytime soon. Um, but I, once I realized that, and, and I don't think I've ever been afraid of death. I remember once when I was a, a young guy, I was backpacking alone in the Sierra Nevadas in California, and I got lost. And I thought, you know... I mean, I was lost for a number of days and I thought to myself, I'm not really, I'm not afraid of dying out here. In fact, if you had to die somewhere, it would be a pretty good place to do it. But I, I think not being afraid of death almost allows you to be afraid of nothing. So I don't, I guess I'm afraid that we as people could not get better than we are today and not be constantly finding a way to improve. Hmm. Uh, But for me personally, I don't think I have any fear. Hmm. And I don't mean, and that doesn't mean I jump out of airplanes without parachutes and things like that. But I just think, I don't think fear stops me. Other things stop me, but I don't think it's ever fear. It's, it's such an interesting experience with fear where some people, and, and I've just, you're, you're our 30th interview, which is our launch interview. It, it's ironic that it all piled up to this one, which I'm excited about. And so we made a point that we would not release these until we had 30 done. <laughs> and, and you are well, also quite an honor. not Thank only you. the man who brought the world together but the man who launched the podcast. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's anywhere near close to those moments. Probably not. I'll take thank it. It's you. good. It's thank good. you for it. Um, with, the, with fear, in, in the last 29 interviews we've had over these last few weeks, it's been such an interesting experience in hearing people's experience with fear. And, and some people, it's as simple as spiders freak them out. <laughs> They're like, what? if you show a spider to me, I will jump 10 feet in the air and run. <laughs> um, for other people, it, it, it's the, the fear of something happening to their child that they've taken so much time to care for and nurture mm-hmm. and, and protect and prepare for the world. Um, for other people, it's not really truly expressing all of who they are to the world. And it's such an interesting piece. Um, when, when you get to the point and I, I believe, honestly, it, it's a foundation of, of probably three different elements of life are filled in, in your world, which is you are enough, you, you have enough, and you know you're loved enough. And even mm-hmm. if that just comes from within, 
when those foundational elements are filled with a human, all of a sudden, the, the fear of going somewhere or dying starts to fade away because they can give themselves a high five on the way out. Um, I know in, in the interview you and I did uh, for, for Forbes the books there, it was that concept of at a young age, I had an experience of almost dying and realizing, ooh, I wasn't ready. Yes. Um, and, and I had to redefine what would I have to accomplish or who would I have to be? How would I have to live life? How would I have to show up each day so that if the day did come sooner than later, I would be ready and I'd be okay. And, and it was a redefining moment of life. I, it sounds as if at 57, you, you've, you've done that along the way where you've identified who you had to be and how you had to live and how you had to show up in a way where it's put you in the position that if today was your day, you'd do it with a smile. Yeah, I find that um, I look back and I think on times where I wish I had done something differently or I wish I had done something or I missed an opportunity or, you know, it's easy to look back and have regret. And I'm not going to say that I don't have regret, but I also, I, I increasingly find consistency with who I've been, even as a little kid. That makes me feel really comfortable with myself. So if I think, well, you know, if I had been smarter, I probably would have done this this way. And then I go, but yeah, but you know what? You've always done it. Instead of going, you know, left, you always went right. And so you just kept going right. I find that being able to look back over my past and be at, being at peace with it gives me a lot of being at peace with who I am today. That's powerful. I'd, I'd love to circle back to that in a couple of questions, just for people who are listening, I'd love to know if you have any insight on how they can find that place. Cause it's not a place that a lot of people can, that they, they can't, they can get there, but they're not there. Most people I meet aren't there. That's a really interesting question. And I don't, You know, I, I I hate to make this completely circular, but I think in a, I, I'm just speculating now. I, I'm not going to position myself as the guy who knows, but I'm speculating that the way you do that is you have internal debate with yourself. Mm. You know, when you when you're thinking about something and regretting it, if you could stop and say, "Well, let's look at it another way," you might find another interpretation that actually makes more sense or just offers you more comfort. Sometimes just knowing there's more than one interpretation and not being determined to figure out which one is right is helpful in of itself. Mm. I agree. The ability to see it from a different angle and find a different perspective, whether it's what was good about it or bad about it or right about it or wrong about it or whatever. Or just framed, different. Or just, or just different. different about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I really believe that if you can look at something you're 100% sure of and see it a different way, it's a lot harder to be a hundred percent sure. Mm. So just that exercise I think is valuable. Mm. I love that. I really love that. Now we've talked about the possibility of regrets on the other side is things people are excited about. What are you most excited about in the future? I, uh, I had a conversation with my wife, Jody, a few months ago, uh, where I had this realization that I shared with her and I, we keep talking about it. It's become almost like a daily conversation for us. I realized now this for me has a lot to do with my age, but I think it's true for anybody at any age. I realized that for us, the next 10 years of our lives are probably the most important 10 years that we will live. Now, why I said that to her is I think at our age, she's a little older than me, I think that 10 years from now, 
we will have either done nothing to change the course of our lives and make it exactly the way we want them to be as we move into, you know, our 60s and beyond, or we're going to wake up 10 years from now and realize we made no decisions. We're exactly where we are today. And it's too late for us to make the kind of dramatic and exciting changes that we'd like to. So I believe for myself that within some short period of time, I'm going to change my life dramatically and it's going to be very different and it's going to be literally the life I dream of living for the rest of my life. Hmm. And I also understand that if I don't consciously and deliberately make that choice, I'm going to be really pissed at myself. That's, I, I'm interested. What are some <laughs> of the key components? <laughs> well, I, um, I, I, I kind of hesitate to say because we're having this debate ourselves, mm. but a lot of the conversation for us is really, uh, so as a, as a married couple, we've moved a lot, especially in the last 10 years for, family reasons, for occupational reasons, for jobs and things like that. And I think for us, we, we often fall into the trap of, well, where do we want to live once we retire? Or she'll probably retire before me. Where do we want to live once she retires? Uh, and I think the trap is thinking, well, we've got to live here. Or we've got to live one of the places that we've lived before. I, I've been having a similar conversation with a friend of mine who's lived in the same town for his entire, it's a city, it's a nice city, but he's lived there for his entire life. I recently asked him, what's the longest you've ever been away from the city you grew up in and where you've lived your entire life? And he said, three weeks. I said, you got to go. You don't have to go forever, but you got to go. So for us, it's really just thinking like, does it matter where we go? If it matters where we go, what are the features of the place we'd like to go that really matter? For instance, I love the ocean. I'm a really bad but devoted surfer. If I could get up every day and go surfing, that would be an incredible thing for me. But then I also think, I've never lived in another country. I'd like to go live in another country where I have to learn the language and the culture and people are different and everything is different. I, I, I really want to challenge myself that way. And then I think, well, can I go to another country and go surfing every day? And, you know, the answer is probably yes. Mm -hmm. So we're in the middle of that debate and, and, and we're not going to debate it for 10 years. I guarantee you, we're going to debate it maybe for a year and then we're going to make some decisions. And I think it's been one of the most fun and exciting things we've done together. We've done a lot of great things together, but it's kind of an intellectual and challenging exercise that really matters for us. We're really talking about our future. And it's really been fun and exciting. How cool. How cool. What it, my, my wife and I have this conversation all the time because like you, we continuously move and we're learning as we go from place to place. We're keeping a list of things we love and things we don't necessarily love. And, and we're, we're slowly refining. We've learned one crucial piece is we like to live where people go on vacation. <laughs> makes a lot of sense right yeah and it's because of the attitude and the viewpoint of life when people are on vacation they're more open carefree adventurous mm. happy they're more connecting with each other there's a different energy about them when they're carefree and just living mm. and we like that energy we work so hard that to put ourselves next to that energy 
allows us to decompress and remember to just live with each other wow, <laughs> instead of constantly working. I, I will say that one of the questions I ask, and I don't know the answer, hmm. but I ask is, does it matter where we live? Hmm. Because I think at the, so obviously there's an ocean or there's not an ocean, right? It's another country or it's not another country. We could move to Canada and it would be a lot, I think, like living in the United States unless we move to Quebec. Mm -hmm. But to some degree, I think we put more importance on where we live than is necessarily, than, than is necessary because I, at least in my life, I end up having a set of really good friends a set of things I like to do regularly, knowing that I can go explore something new when I want to go explore something new. Mm. And I think once you begin to understand what's important to you, you may realize or discover that where you are is perfect. And that's one of our options. Where we are may be perfect. But I don't want to decide that passively. I want to really know that if we decide to stay where we are or when we decide to go wherever we go, or maybe we'll go to lots of places. I want to know we chose it. We aggressively considered the alternatives and picked what we picked. That's awesome. Life on purpose. Life and on purpose. We, we, it, it's, we, I'm not affiliated with the service, but I used the service a few times. And there's a service called Third Home that's amazing for this opportunity. Um, it, it's only a week or so at a time. But it allows people to put, if they have a house of some sort or a second home or something on there, and that way, because they, they determine that most people, if they get a second home, land up only going back and forth between the first and second because they mm. bought it, they feel obligated, it's so they always use it. Exactly. And so what they said is, hey, why don't you take that home, put it up on the network. They have something like 10,000 homes all over the world. And then people can choose which mm. weeks or days to put up and they can do like a travel club. And mm. we used it a few times. It was spectacular. Oh, I love um, that. But it's a way to be able to live briefly in many different places to just experience what they're like. And we, we wouldn't have stood at some of these places. They were very nice. Really, <laughs> 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 like, this is out of the budget for what we would have done here. But um, it, it was very affordable with their service when we used it. Hmm. And and we got the state places where we now consider we might want to live there at some point. We Just you be, and you and I might be neighbors. Hey, that'd be fun. It, it it's a it, it's interesting. Just a just a tip on the side there. Um, again, I'm not. I just used their service and really loved it. And it was great to adventure around the world and see different places. But get to live in a home and you know Airbnb now offers that. But it, but it was just a place to live in someone's home and and go to the grocery store and have a normal you know, week of living there and feel what it really feels like. Um, it was nice. I love that. Nice. I'm going to check that out. So we're going to switch gears real quick and, and do the, the second section, which is just three quick questions. We call this nuts and bolts, the practical, tactical, applicable, just hone in on, on kind of advice per se. Um, and, and the first question of this section is where do you spend the majority of your thoughts and time and life each day currently? I'm going to answer that in the negative because I don't like the answer. Hmm. And the answer is with my nose glued to a screen, reading and responding to email. And it is one of my goals is to change my life in such a way that I do not live or die by the next incoming or the last outgoing email. Hmm. And I just, 
from the day I got an email account, it changed my life. And I don't like the way I, I don't like the way it's changed and the way it's increasingly eaten my life. So I'm have decided at this point that I'm going to make a change. Mm. I think one of the most powerful decisions I made in the past 12 months was I observed an interview by one of the gentlemen who started, I think it was either Lyft or Airbnb, one of them. And, and one change he made is every year he decides to distance himself from some form of technology that eats up a lot of his time. Mm. And mm. so this year, his decision was to take email off of his phone and just delete the app and no longer have access to email via his phone. <laughs> and as simple as this sounds, I did it. I said, I, I could do that. So I did it. I challenged my wife. She did it. And I watched my thumb each moment throughout the day go to where the app used to be to try to press it. Mm. And I replaced it with the yoga schedule for our local <laughs> yoga gym. So I opened the yoga schedule multiple times a day for the first few weeks. My thumb was searching for the emails to make sure there wasn't anything there. And instead I kept, I became very acquainted with the yoga schedule for the next three weeks. <laughs> I think that is a brilliant, not only making something go away, but replacing what's something you'd rather put there instead. I think that's, I love that. Yeah. Someone taught me that. They said, never get rid of a bad habit instead of replace it with something hmm. else. Hmm. Otherwise, eventually you'll find a replacement bad habit. that's <laughs> just as bad in a different format. That, that rings true. So here's a question, and this will be a twist on it, because normally we ask, in what you focus on, what's a key to your success? And so maybe we might have to adjust this one. In knowing that you want to make a change, what do you believe one of the keys to success will be? Hmm. I think, you know, I'm struggling with that. I was struggling before we started this interview. I think I think you said it. I think I need to replace the habits I want to go away with something that I want to introduce into my life or reinforce in my life. And I don't know that I had that answer until a minute ago when you said it, because I think I'm really good at trying to make bad things go away or things that I, I shouldn't say bad, but make things go away that I don't want there anymore. But as you said, it tends to introduce other bad habits. Now I know that I need to just replace them with good habits and I'll have a much higher rate of success. That's true. There's also a 20 second rule. Whatever the new good habit is, make it available to you within 20 seconds or less. <laughs> and on the other side, make the bad habit more than 20 seconds of effort away. I, I, I'm a big believer in that. That makes complete sense to me. <laughs> no. I read it in a book somewhere and it was very useful. Well, I mean, it did we, help. so we have, we follow those kinds of rules. Uh, for instance, I know that if you bring ice cream in my house, I will eat it, all of it. And I used to joke with my wife when we got married that I had never put the lid back on a pint of Ben and Jerry's in my life. If the lid came off, I went to the bottom. <laughs> now I only eat half the pint because I'm a nice guy and I share. But so we are very, very particular about the food we bring into our house because I don't have a lot of willpower for resisting it in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day if I'm working at home or what have you. And that has been very effective. I eat a lot of carrots because when I open the refrigerator, that's the first thing I see. Mm, that's smart. And there's no ice cream. <laughs> no temptation. Yes, exactly. That's smart. So we have our final question. 
And the final question is what's one actionable tip that can help other people achieve and experience the type of success you've experienced over your life? Wow, that's a tough question, isn't it? All I can say is that I have always tried to look at what I was doing or about to do or wanted to do and really kind of wanted to make sure it was really something I wanted to do. I've never been very good at doing things I didn't want to do. And when I've wanted to do something, I've been very good at it. And one of the things I've always enjoyed was a real big challenge. So things that are kind of easy, I never had a lot of interest in. And other things that I had no interest in, I had a hard time keeping my attention on. But when something was really a challenge and I really was really engaged me, then I had no problem sticking with it and seeing it through. And I think that might be a useful tip for others. I love that. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing a little bit of your life with us and some insight and some fun adventures and stories and, and some strategy to look for, the, look for those big challenges, things that light your soul on fire and bring you fully to life. We very much appreciate you spending time with us here. It's great to be here, Jerick. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And for everyone who took time to listen, thank you for spending time with us, a little bit of life and love and adventure. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, make sure to click subscribe. Uh, if, you, if you know someone who needs to hear this because they need this kind of big thinking in their life or the ability to really truly have that internal debate and see something from a state of empathy or another point of view, make sure to share it with them. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all next episode.